Well, good morning, church. If you guys have a Bible, uh, open it up to Mark chapter 14. And as always, if you don't have a Bible or forgot your Bible or had too many kids in your hands to grab a Bible, you can always grab one when you get here out in the lobby uh, at the welcome table or back by the offering box. Uh, feel free to grab one of those. We want you to have God's Word uh, in front of you. We'll have some of the verses up on the screen, but we want you to see that this, these are not my words. These are, these are God's words. Uh, for the last few weeks, we've been journeying through the final week of Jesus's life before his death and resurrection, and now we are getting to the final day, the final day. So uh, yeah, we'll be in Mark uh, 14, starting in verse, in verse 12. Well, there was uh, a night a few years ago that I was working in the emergency department, and a, a kid came in with a laceration on his foot. And it was kind of a bad laceration on his foot, and it was still actively uh, bleeding, and the kid was uh, screaming, uh, the mom was screaming, um, I was screaming, uh, he wasn't holding still, and so he was just kind of rolling all around, and this bloody foot was just kind of making this, this bloody mess, and blood was getting all over the, 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 the cart that he was on, and the floor, and the room, and, and there was just kind of blood everywhere. Now, I realize that talking about blood can sometimes make some of you feel a little squeamish, sometimes a little nauseous, sometimes a little lightheaded, and that's why it is fun to talk about it. And so I'm going to just keep going until we can get Seth to pass out, all right? That's my goal. I'll stop when he drops, all right? Uh, but listen, foot lacerations are the worst, and that's why I annoyingly always have my boys wear socks around the house, or I make sure they always have shoes when they go outside. Uh, and the reason that they are the worst is because one, they're really painful to get a laceration on your foot. But then if you have to get it repaired uh, and, you, and you go somewhere to get stitches, the, the numbing cream that we could topically use isn't that uh, effective on the foot. And so often you have to get a needle into the foot to numb it. A needle into the foot. Nothing yet. Okay. It's kind of, we're we're going to get him. We're going to get him there. Okay. A needle into the foot to numb it. And that's why foot lacerations are the worst. And so this foot was, it was actively bleeding, right? The kids screaming. The mom is kind of pacing behind me, right? And I try to sort of block the vision of the child so he doesn't see kind of the needle that I'm going to pull out. All right. And so I kind of block his vision. I pull the needle out, but guess who sees the needle? The mom sees the needle. And uh, all of a sudden, I hear a thud. The mom has now passed out, struck her head on the counter of the, the, the corner of the counter. Her head is now bleeding. And, and I'm standing there with like a bleeding foot and a passed out mom, bleeding head. And at that point, I really just questioned the life decisions that had brought me to that place where I had to deal with that situation. And after I kind of questioned all these decisions I was making in life, uh, I then moved into kind of frustration mode uh, with a sort of like like a come on humanity, like give me, you know, give me a break, right? That's, that was often something we'd say in the ER uh, is come on humanity, like let's pull it together. You guys are better than this, all right? Uh, and so we got her bandaged up. The kid ended up being fine. She ended up being fine and it all ended up uh, being okay. But it was this large kind of bloody mess. Okay, unless you are desensitized to it, and unless you're around it all the time, blood, for the most part, makes us uncomfortable, right? 
it, it makes us a little squeamish. It makes us a little uneasy. Why? Why? I think for a few reasons. I mean, I think for, the, for one reason, for the most part, blood is supposed to be inside of you, right? And so if something has happened that it's now, you know, coming outside of you and it's, it's maybe squirting or uh, uh, just kind of spewing out, all right, it can make us uncomfortable, right? can make us squeamish because it's supposed to be on the inside of us. Blood is also, it's precious. It is precious. It is life-giving. It's what is essentially transporting life to your, all parts of your body. And so isn't it interesting and isn't it saying something really powerful that God in all his wisdom commanded that in order to make atonement or payment for our sins, blood would have to be involved. He says blood would have to be involved. For example, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 17 verse 11, we'll have that up on uh, the screen. Uh, Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your sins. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And then Hebrews chapter 9 writes, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The, the fact that it takes blood to atone for sin should tell us how serious sin is. It, it should make us uncomfortable that God says sin is so offensive, it's so rebellious, it's so treasonous, that it requires a sacrifice of blood to be spilt. Like that, that should make us uneasy and uncomfortable. Blood must be spilt for his holy and just judgment to pass over his people. But, but we as kind of modern day, you know, church going people, we can often feel weird about all this talk about blood, right? Even like communion kind of weirds us out a little bit. Why are we talking about blood? And I think often we think that way. Uh, and it seems blood just seems like too gruesome to talk for like church folk to talk about, right? Uh, and the reason we think that is because we don't think our sin is really that bad, We don't really think our sin is that serious that it would require blood to make amends for it. Like, is our sin really that bad, right? Can't we just sacrifice some money? Can't we just sacrifice some time? Can't we just sacrifice some energy? Can't we just sacrifice some things to kind of make amends for our sins? Can't we just go out and just do enough good things to kind of make up for all the bad things we've done? Like, can't we just sacrifice those things and make amends for our sin? And God says, no, those things can't pay the price for your sin. It has to be blood. It has to be blood. Now remember where we're at in the book of Mark. Jesus and his disciples, they are in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. 
which the Passover was the holiday or the feast that the people of God celebrated, remembering how God had rescued them and brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And it's back in the book of Exodus where we learn about the first Passover. God sent plagues on the Egyptians, right? Maybe you're familiar with this, right? The 10 plagues he sends on the Egyptians to show his power, to rescue his people, and to put all the lowercase g false gods of the Egyptians to shame, right? He just puts them all to shame. He sends 10 plagues, right? First, the Nile is turned to blood. Then frogs come out of the Nile. Then gnats, then flies, then livestock start dying. Then people start getting boils and and, uh, locusts and darkness. And then it finally comes to the 10th and final plague, which was the death of all the firstborn males. And before this 10th plague happened, God instructed his people to kill a spotless, unblemished lamb. And to take the blood of the lamb and then smear it or paint it across their doorway. And then the lamb was to be roasted, it was to be eaten, it was, there were specific instructions for how to uh, observe this meal, how to prepare and eat this meal. And that night, then, then when the nighttime, when darkness fell, uh, all the households who did not have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, all the firstborn males were killed. But the Lord passed over the households who by faith had put the blood of the lamb as protection on their doorposts. And then after that final plague, that's finally when Pharaoh says, go, and the people are freed from their slavery in Egypt. Okay, so, they, so they're celebrating this Passover every year. And people travel to Jerusalem, and they travel to Jerusalem, and they have to sacrifice a bunch of lambs. It's thought that essentially one lamb had to be sacrificed for about every 10 people uh, to celebrate the Passover. And what would happen is the priest would sacrifice the lamb, and the blood would be sprinkled on the altar, and then the lamb would be roasted, and it would be eaten at a Passover meal. And Josephus, who is a Jewish uh, historian, estimated that during the time of this story in Mark, uh, when Jesus was there in Jerusalem, He estimates that approximately 250,000 lambs were sacrificed in the temple in one afternoon during Passover. 250,000 lambs sacrificed in one afternoon. Now, someone else did the math, but I double-checked it, and I think it works out, okay? That is 144 priests killing six lambs a minute for five hours straight. Like, think about that. 144 priests killing six lambs a minute for five hours. Like, that is a lot of blood. Like, think about how much, think about how much blood that is. I'm sorry, Seth. But you're still, you're doing so well, man. But think about how much blood that is. That is a crazy amount of blood. That is a crazy amount of blood. But this year, this year that we're, the story we're reading here in Mark 14, this year is going to be different because Jesus is going to show his disciples and us how he is the one that all of the hundreds of thousands of lambs were pointing to and preparing us for. And he's going to give us a deeper and truer meaning to the Passover meal and show us how he, through sacrificing his own body and giving up his own blood, he will set us apart He will free us, he will redeem us, and he will restore us. 
So are you guys ready? Mark 14? Mark 14, verse 12. Let's go. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Okay, so it's, it's time to celebrate the Passover meal and two of his disciples, which in parallel accounts we learn it's Peter and John. Peter and John say, hey, where are we having uh, this meal at? And Jesus says, go into the city. You'll find a man carrying a jar of water, which in that culture, it would have been a little unusual. Uh, that was typically the job of a woman. But it, he says, go find the man carrying a jar of water, follow him, and then ask the master of the house about a guest room. You see, most larger homes in Jerusalem had a, a, a second story, kind of big a guest room with a separate entrance, and people were encouraged to open up their homes for this large influx of people uh, during a Passover week. And so Peter, John, uh, Peter and John, they go, and guess what? Verse 16 says, they found it just as he had told them, right? You remember, this should maybe remind you about the triumphal entry, right? He told them to go find them. They'll, they'll see a colt. They'll say the Lord needs the colt, and they'll get the colt, right? Like, this all is happening just as Jesus has told them. And they go, Peter and John go, and they prepare for the Passover meal. Now, you, you see, we, we read this passage, and we're going to get to the institution of the Lord's Supper, which maybe some of your Bibles have that, you know, even titled uh, in your Bible. And, and we read this passage, and we kind of quickly want to get to the Lord's Supper, or the communion part, right? And I was planning, I mean, I was planning to get super uh, kind of academic on you and talk about the Lord's Supper and, and uh, talk about transubstantiation and consubstantiation. And we were going to kind of, you know, uh, point out our differences between uh, Catholicism and Lutheranism and all that good stuff. And it was going to be super academic. You were going to hate it. And I was going to feel smart for like a brief second. Uh, but, but listen, we can't, we can't do that right now. There's a time and place to do that, but what we have to understand first, I think what is primary, uh, primarily important for us to understand is that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the context of a Passover meal. And as Christians in 2019, like we sometimes miss that, right? That the Lord's Supper was instituted in the context of a Passover meal. And a Passover meal was a liturgical meal meaning that there was an order of service and there were certain foods and cups that represented certain things. And so some of you maybe have participated in a, in a Seder before, and if so, this is probably even a little bit more interesting and meaningful for you. And so Peter and John, they're sent to prepare the meal. Well, the question is, what goes into preparing a meal? What were, what were Peter and John, uh, what were they doing? Uh, well, they first had to get some unleavened bread, Okay, which, which unleavened bread can be baked more quickly than a regular loaf of bread. Uh, that first Passover meal in Egypt was supposed to be eaten in haste because everyone was to be ready to exit and hit the road uh, from Egypt. And so they had unleavened bread. Leaven was also a symbol of corruption and sin and rottenness. And so all leaven had to be removed and cleansed from the house. 
Then there would typically be a bowl of salt water, and the bowl of salt water reminded them of the tears that they cried in Egypt, and it reminded them of the Red Sea that God parted and rescued them through. Then there would be a collection usually of bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. And then there would be a mixture of like apples and pomegranates and kind of this paste type thing that would remind them of the clay that they had to make into bricks while they were in slavery uh, in Egypt. And then there were four cups of wine right? Which don't get used to me using illustrations, but I just thought it was going to work today, okay? All right? So there there would usually be four cups of wine, and and all the germaphobes, just calm down. We're still doing communion the way we normally do with individual cups, all right? We're not all going to drink out of these. I saw some of you kind of eyeing up people who are like hacking and coughing and be like, all right, I'm not going to that cup, all right, wherever he's at. Uh, This is just for illustrative purposes, all right? But there would be four cups of wine, and it was these four cups that would remind them of the four promises uh, that we read about in Exodus chapter 6. So Exodus chapter 6, which we'll have up on the screen, just follow with me as I read that. It says, God says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so the first cup that they would have at the meal, uh, it, it, it was to remind them that they had been set apart right? They're they're in Exodus. You have been brought out from under the burdens of Egypt. You have been set apart. And so as they were going through the meal, the first cup would be to remind them that they had been set apart. The, The second cup was to remind them that God freed them from slavery, Right? So this is a reminder that God has, has freed us. And then they get to the, the third cup. And the third cup, which was likely the cup that Jesus was holding when he institutes the Lord's Supper, this is called the cup of redemption. And it was a reminder that God had redeemed them or purchased them with an outstretched arm. And then the fourth cup, which is the cup that Jesus didn't get to, he didn't drink at that last supper. This was the cup of restoration. And Jesus said he wasn't going to drink this until the work of salvation was completed. Uh, but this was a reminder that to the people that God would restore them into a right relationship with him. And so listen, this isn't Jesus just sending Peter and John to go grab some pizzas and Hot Pockets and, you know, get some stuff ready. Like, this is a special meal. This is a set-apart meal in which the people are reminded of the promises of God that he has set them apart, that he has freed them, that he has redeemed them, and that he will restore them. This is not just any meal. This is a feast. This is a feast. And in our day, we have forgotten how to feast. We have forgotten how to feast. Now, now don't get me wrong. We know how to eat. And we know how to eat more than we need to eat, okay? I'm not saying that. But we have forgotten how to feast. You see, a modern American meal, it's all about consuming, 
right? We usually eat as fast as we can and as practically as we can so that we can just kind of move on with our busy schedules, right? So uh, when I was in a time of experimenting with, with productivity, um, and trying to be just super, uh, you know, make best use of every minute of the day, uh, as well as combine that with I'm not good at cooking uh, any meals, all right? My mom incredibly spoiled me, and then I got married, and then Britt did it. And so really, like, if something happened to my mom and Britt, I would be, like, there would be concerns about survival and food and what to do, all right? And so uh, what I did was I purchased this product called Huel, Huel. And Kevin, maybe you can just turn me down a little bit so some of that static or whatever won't happen. Um, but I purchased a product called Huel, which was supposed to be a combination of human fuel, okay? Human fuel, Huel. And it was essentially like this, this protein drink with like oats and nutrients. And essentially the idea was there is everything, every, every nutrient and vitamin and everything you need is in this powder and it's all you need to survive. And so if this was all you, you drank and ate like for the rest of your life, you would be okay. That was, that's kind of the marketing push, right? And so some people had, had literally committed to like, I'm not going to eat anything else except Huel for a full year and just see what happens. Now, I wasn't that extreme, uh, but I tried to do it for like uh, a few days where nothing, uh, nothing to have except Huel. Now, I, I did have the fuel that I needed, all right? Um, but some things happened, all right? We won't talk about like the bathroom, what happened there, but we'll talk about like like, right, there was, it, it sucked out all the joy and pleasure of life, right? <laughs> I was surviving, but, uh, you know, you just don't really look forward to the day when you just got this, like, gloppy, like, paste that, that you're eating, right? In fact, what, what I missed out on was, was the, the enjoyment of, of, of being with people around a meal and, and worshiping God through the pleasure and the taste and, and the smells of good food. And, and, and you see, a feast is more than just consuming. A feast is way more than just consuming. It is a set-apart meal where we are to give attention to the people that we are at the table with and we are to give attention to the God who has graciously provided this meal that we are enjoying. And a feast is an opportunity to remind one another of the promises of God and share stories of his goodness and faithfulness. A feast should be a worshipful experience because when we recognize it as being set apart, then we no longer worship the food, but we use the food to worship the giver of that food. I mean, isn't it interesting that God commands his people in the Old Testament to observe certain feasts? And, and he's kind of a stickler about it too, right? Like he doesn't have a firm schedule about how, how often they're to have like small group sermon-based discussion Bible studies, right? But he does like have a heart and fast like, hey, on this day of this month, you will feast. You will feast and you will do it every year and you will not miss it. And it's like, it is on the calendar. You will feast. I think that's really interesting, Right? And so we have tried to capture some of this heart, even in our city groups, our small group gatherings that meet throughout the week. We have a scheduled night each month, which is supposed to be a meal night. 
Now, we haven't done this perfectly yet, but I want to see us continue to do it better. The, the, the heart behind having a meal night is to not actually consume a meal as practically and quickly and conveniently as possible. If that was the goal, we'd just say, everyone stay at your own house. Don't come make a mess at ours. Like, just stay at your house and just, you know, uh, we'll send Huel to everybody, right? And just, just knock it out and then just study the Bible the rest of the night, right? Like we could do that, but that's not the goal of meal night. The heart behind us encouraging groups to have a meal night together is that ultimately we would feast. And not saying that it has to be expensive or abundant amount of food, but that, but that we would uh, have a meal that is set apart and our attention would be turned to the people that are at the table with us and our attention would be turned to the God who has brought us all together that we would linger over good food, that we would not eat it as quickly as possible and shovel it in, but that we would linger, and that it, while we are lingering, that we would share stories of God's faithfulness, and that we would worship God through a feast, recognizing it as a set-apart meal for a people and enjoying a people that have also been set apart. Right? And the Bible says we've been set apart before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 5 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, right? Set apart, holy, and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's not primarily a controversial verse. That is primarily a comforting verse, church, that we have been set apart. And so a feast is a set-apart meal enjoyed by a set-apart people worshiping a set-apart holy God. And so last week, our city group, we, we started to kind of try to do this. Uh, we just had a very simple, like, three-course meal uh, where, where it, it, no one was even prepared for it. I just kind of, when they showed up, I said, hey, we're going to divide it into thirds. We're just going to eat appetizers right first. We're going to go slow. We're going to linger. We're going to have our kids, like, slow down and not just in five minutes have, have eaten everything and then wonder what's next. And we're going to read scripture together. We're going to share stories together. We're going to, uh, we're going to worship God together as we linger over and enjoy each bite and each taste that we have. And so this month, we're going to even try to do it even a little bit, a little bit better, right? If you're in my city group, let's, all right, get ready, all right? And, uh, and we'd encourage the other groups to pray about, hey, how can, how can this not just be a meal, but how can this be a feast? Okay, look, look back at, at Mark. Look back at Mark, because not everyone at this meal is a true follower of Jesus, right? The, the, the plot thickens. If I had bad guy music soundtrack in the background, like now would be the time to hit it, right? Okay, the plot thickens because there is one in their midst that is so desensitized and calloused by his own sin. He's so enslaved by his love of other things instead of Jesus that he's already betrayed Jesus to the chief priest for a little bit of money. But before you start shaking your finger at Judas... You better ask the Spirit to examine your own heart and see if some of what was in Judas's heart is in yours this morning as well. Look with me at Mark 14, verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. 
And they began to be sorrowful and say to one another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. They're, they're going through this liturgical meal. They're probably on the second cup. They've probably drank the second cup. They've probably reminded everyone that God has freed them from slavery. And then Jesus drops a bombshell on them and tells them that one is going to betray him. Now, now we read this, and, and we know it's Judas, Right? Like, I mean, spoiler alert, if you didn't, it's Judas, right? All right? All right? Like, like we, we know it's Judas, right? I mean, the flannel graph in Sunday school, uh, it, it was like, you know, 11 choir boys and one with like this really dark beard who's had like a mustache like waxed and curled and, and he's like off on the corner cackling while he's counting the money, right? It's like, oh, it's, it's that guy. That's the guy. That's the one we should be worried about. Which, just FYI, uh, one of the unwritten rules for the finance team is that if they start cackling while counting the offering, they're off the team. We just, we don't trust them. If you cackle while you count money, you're, you're out, okay? Uh, uh, but, but listen, like, they, they didn't, it wasn't that obvious to them, right? Like, they didn't, they didn't know. They didn't have a clue that it was Judas, like you would think if, if Judas was going to be this betrayer and this just, just awful, you know, guy that, that and when Jesus says, hey, one of you is going to betray me, you would at least think like Peter, James, and John would have been like, I'm betting it's that guy, right? Like, but no, they don't. They're like, is it me? Wait a minute. No, Jesus, is it me? Is it, is it I, Lord? Judas has successfully hidden his sin from his friends. And here is the scary and sobering thing. We can hide our true selves from people, but we cannot hide anything from Jesus. I mean, your friends, your family, your church, you can, you can hide stuff from them, right? I mean, you can, you can act like this religious person who's got it all together. Uh, you can say all the right things. You can pray all the right things. You can post all the right things. And you can fool all of us. Like, I've been fooled by people before, and I will be fooled by people in the future. But get this, you cannot fool Jesus. He knows. He knows. I'm talking to us this morning like he knows. And he lovingly gives a warning to Judas and says, woe to the man who betrays him. He warns him. He says, he's warning him like there's going to be this eternal punishment and judgment is coming and it will not pass over you. He says, it would have been better if you hadn't have even been born. Jesus warns him. And he warns you this morning. But you see, G Judas is not operating like a free man here. He's not operating like a free man here. He's operating still like a slave. And Jesus came to free us from our sin. 
What sin do you need to confess of and repent of this morning and be freed from? Confession and repentance is a beautiful gift that God gives to us when the Spirit convicts us of sin. What do we do with it? What do we do with this sin? God gives us a gift. He says, confess and repent of it. Confess it to God. Confess it to one another. And what happens is that, that, that power, that enslavement of sin then is, is broken. And you're free. Like sin enslaves you. Sin enslaves you. It usually doesn't do it all at once, but it entices you little by little until you are so desensitized to it and so enslaved by it that you do the unthinkable like Judas does here. I mean, this is an unthinkable thing. Judas betrays Jesus for a little bit of money. The one that Judas has been with him the whole time. He's seen him walk on water. He's seen him feed thousands of people. Like he's seen him raise people back to life. He does an unthinkable thing here, but he's so desensitized and enslaved and calloused by his own sin that he betrays Jesus for a little bit of money. But Jesus, listen church, Jesus has the power to free you. Jesus has the power to free you. And in, in, in Matthew's account of this story, we get a little uh, helpful insight into, into how we can diagnose a heart like Judas, okay? And in Matthew's account, we see the disciples, when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, all, it goes around the room, right? Disciples are saying, most of the disciples are saying, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? It gets to Judas. He says, is it I, Rabbi? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Rabbi? It's, there's actually no record of Judas ever calling Jesus Lord. He calls him Rabbi or teacher. What about you? Have you only thought of Jesus as your teacher, as your rabbi, or is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? Have you bowed your knee to the Lordship of Christ? Is he your ruling authority in your life? Perhaps you are not free from your sin because you've never confessed and believed that Jesus is Lord. Now listen, they did not all betray, all the disciples did not betray Jesus like Judas did. But by the end of this night, they're all going to abandon him. Peter's going to deny him, right, three times. They're going to take off running when they come to arrest Jesus. They're all going to fail him to some degree or another in the next 24 hours. But here's the comforting thing for us. This Passover meal, which ends up becoming kind of the first communion table, this is not a table of merit. Meaning none of them deserve to be there. Like, yes, Judas, he, he betrayed Jesus in a different kind of way, but they're all going to abandon Jesus. None of them deserved to be at the table and to be invited to the Lord's table. Jesus knows that they're going to deny him and run and abandon him and disassociate from him. And listen, we have all done the same thing, haven't we? Like, yes, we've been freed from sin, but we still often run back to it. We still often run from Jesus. 
But the Lord's table is not a table of merit. It is a table of grace. It's a table that although we do not deserve to come to it, although it is a table we have run from, Jesus lovingly invites us back to it. And here we do it every, uh, most weeks, most weeks, because, and the reason we do it most weeks is because I'm a forgetful person and you are a forgetful people. And we must remind one another just how good this God is that would invite cowards and rebels and betrayers and deniers and, and gluttons and, and uh, liars and adulterers. He would invite them all to the table, not because of their merit, but because of his grace. It's not a table for those who've redeemed themselves. It's a table for those who by God's grace alone, through faith alone, have been redeemed by Christ's blood alone. So now let's, let's go back into the upper room and let's go with them and let's watch this set-apart meal be instituted by Jesus. Okay, look back at Mark 14, verse 22. And as they were eating... He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of my covenant, of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. They are at a point of the meal where they've gotten to the third cup, the cup of redemption. And now Jesus does something that will institute a practice that followers of Jesus will regularly do and will do until he returns. Because at this point, they, they would have eaten most of the food already. Okay, at this point in the meal, most of the food would have been eaten. Uh, the lamb that had been uh, sacrificed and roasted usually would have been eaten. However, this meal was a little strange because, listen, there was probably no lamb on the table. We don't know this for sure, but most scholars think there was probably no lamb on the table. And what Jesus does in these few brief verses is he uncovers their eyes and our eyes to see that, that there's no lamb on the table because the lamb is at the table. Remember who John the Baptist said Jesus was. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus gives his disciples a new meaning with the bread and the cup. And he says, this bread, this bread, it represents, it symbolizes my body that is given for you. And this cup of redemption, it represents the blood of a new covenant. No longer will the blood of an animal have to be sprinkled on you or on the altar. Jesus says his blood, his sacrifice, his grace will be the once and for all sufficient sacrifice for sins. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 17. Just follow along as I read it on the screen. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he had perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. 
And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Sin is still just as serious as it was in the Old Testament, and God is still just as violent with sin as he was in the Old Testament. But no longer do a quarter of a million lambs need to be slain every Passover because the precious blood of Christ that was poured out once and for all to redeem us from our sin so that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit so that the law of God could be written on our hearts and our minds and he would remember our sins no more. Not because God is a forgetful God or an aging dementia God. No, but because even though our sins are still horrifically offensive and treasonous, he will not remember our sins anymore because of the precious and sufficient blood of Christ that was poured out for you and me. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Amen, church? Jesus is our Passover lamb. And just as the first Passover was observed the night before God redeemed the Israelites from slavery through the blood of lambs in Egypt... This Passover meal was eaten the night before God redeemed the world from sin and death through the blood of Jesus. But I've got a question for you this morning. What are you putting on your doorpost? And I'm not talking about seasonal decorations on your actual doors. But remember the people of God in Egypt who put their trust for salvation in nothing else but the blood of a lamb that they put on their doorpost. They were trusting in the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice that would save them and that would keep them safe as God's judgment passed over. Like what what are you putting on your doorpost? What are you trusting in to redeem you? Is it your good works? Is that what you're painting on your doorpost, your good works? Is it being a nice and moral person? Is that what you're putting on your doorpost? Like, is it going to church? Is it sort of being religious? Is it trying your hardest? Is it giving to the poor? Like, what are you putting on your doorpost to trust uh, for your redemption and salvation? And listen, all those things might be well and good, but you've got to understand your sin is so serious. It's so rebellious. It's such a treason against God that it needs blood to pay for it. Your good works won't pay for it. It has to be the blood of a perfect sacrifice, and his name is Jesus. He is the only refuge and hope we have. We, we often make it more complicated than it needs to be. The problem of our sin uh, actually has a very simple solution that can even be put into a couple lines of a song. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? The cup of restoration? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He redeems us and he restores us. And he says, take and eat. I will set you apart. I will free you. I will redeem you. And I will restore you. Take and eat. You see, actually the first Passover wasn't in Egypt with the 10 plagues. It wasn't. The first Passover was in the garden. The the, the serpent deceived our great, 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 great times a bunch grandparents, Adam and Eve. 
He deceived Adam and Eve and said, take and eat of this fruit that God had commanded them not to eat. And they took and they ate and they fell into sin. And God could have rightly and justly executed judgment on them right away. They broke the law. But what does God do? He lovingly kills an animal and covers them with garments of skin. And God's judgment passes over Adam and Eve. And the serpent does the same thing to you and me when he tempts us with sin. He says, take and eat. And sin, it it looks nice. It, It even tastes nice going down. But listen, it does not nourish us. It does not restore us. It actually destroys us and it harms us and it's killing us. But Jesus came to restore us. And in a great restorative act that should remind us of the great fall in the garden, he says, no longer take and eat of sin. He says, but instead, here is my body and here is my blood. Take and eat of me and I will restore you back with God. You see, this is beautiful because we, in it we see Jesus restoring what was lost in the garden. When you come to the table, which we're going to do in a, in a second. I know I'm preaching a little long. When you come to the table, you, you need to remember your grandparents, Adam and Eve. You need to remember what was lost in the garden. And you need to remember that Jesus is restoring you back to God. But I can't take and eat for you. And that's one of the reasons we don't pass the plates around because we want you to understand that you personally have to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's not something I can force on you. It's not something I can, you know, put in your mouth and just kind of chew it up for you. I wish I could. But listen, when the Spirit convicts you, this is what you do. Jesus invites you to his table, not because of your works, but because of his grace. I urge you to take and eat and receive him. And may he be the only thing that you are putting on your doorposts, that you are trusting in for salvation. And parents, maybe even today you ask your kids what's on their doorposts. And maybe you explain to them what's on yours. And as the, uh, the band comes back up, I was reading a story about a forest fire in Yellowstone Park. And after the fire had subsided, the forest rangers started walking through the forest park and to assess all the damage. And one of the rangers found a bird that was huddled at the base of a tree, but nothing was really left of the bird except the carbonized, petrified shell covered in ashes. And it was sort of a strange sight for the park ranger to see because typically a bird uh, would see a fire coming and, and like fly away, right? Birds have that ability. Uh, Usually they would see the fire coming, they would take to the sky and they would fly away. So it was sort of a strange sight to see this bird that just got burned up in the fire at the base of a tree. And they felt sort of sick about it. They assumed maybe the fire had just come on too fast. Maybe it caught the bird by surprise and they couldn't escape. But what happened next, I think, gives us a good picture of Christ. Because they knocked the bird over with a stick, and they saw three tiny chicks chirping and running out from under their mother's wing. You see, the blaze had not caught the bird off guard. The fire did not take the bird by surprise. 
When the blaze had arrived, the mother had remained steadfast, and instead of flying away, she willingly died so that those under the cover of her wings could live. And it reminded me of the psalmist in Psalm 91, verse 4, who writes, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. Like what's about to happen to Jesus is not a surprise. The betrayal, the crucifixion, this isn't catching him off guard. This isn't, this isn't, he wasn't expecting this. He knows it's coming. And yet Jesus willingly went to the cross and took the full blow of God's judgment and wrath that was meant for us so that we under the protection of his wings might be set apart and freed and redeemed and restored. Let's pray.